good afternoon everybody thank you so much for coming um, this episode of money concepts is going to be about uh, recurrence equations uh, so as a computer scientist i studied these recurrence equations uh, when i was in uh, in school and in college uh, but for a very long time uh, i did not really use much of it uh, in investing or anything like that um and then i started getting into a little bit of financial modeling and started looking at how people uh, how how investors modeled companies and how um, various kinds of financial calculations are done for example how are uh, mortgage calculations done and uh, how are dcfs done how does the black scholes model work uh, what 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 kinds of models do people use for planning for retirement and things like that and then i very quickly realized that all these different models from different areas of uh, finance and investing uh, they can all be uh, cast as recurrence equations and so i had already studied uh, about this uh, in college and so i could uh, see that connection that uh, various kinds of financial models are just uh, recurrence equations in disguise and if you know a little bit about uh, recurrence equations and how to formulate them and how to solve them uh, that can help you understand a whole lot of uh, financial calculations better and so uh, i'm here to sort of help you see this connection and to uh, help you appreciate it that's that's what this episode is going to be about um so uh, before uh, looking looking at uh, the details uh, of uh, you know how how recurrence equations are used and things like that uh, first of all what is a recurrence equation um so i had this uh, simple example in my thread where uh, le- let's say you toss a coin n times okay uh, so let's let's say n equals 10 so we we toss our coin 10 times uh, now when we toss our coin um, uh, so many times uh, we we can get any number of possible outcomes um, so in in general uh, if we toss our coin once we can get two possible outcomes heads or tails if we toss our coin two times we can get four possible outcomes um, and and so on so uh, in general if we toss our coin n times we get two to the n possible outcomes and the question is uh, how many of these outcomes will have uh, two consecutive tails in them and how many of them won't have two consecutive tails in them uh, so i i call this number uh, an um, a is uh, just a, uh, a prefix and n is really uh, the number of times we toss our coin so for example a3 is equal to 5 uh, why why is a3 equals 5 because when we toss our coin 3 times uh, there are eight possible outcomes so the only ones that have consecutive tails are uh, htt tth and ttt so those those are the three outcomes that have consecutive tails and the other five outcomes they don't have consecutive tails so uh, when we toss our coin three times there are five possible outcomes that don't have consecutive tails so a3 equals 5 and so on so my question was uh, what is a10 so when we toss a coin 10 times uh, how how many of those outcomes won't have 10 uh, won't have two consecutive tails and uh, it turns out that a10 is 144 uh but very few people uh, got got this uh, this particular uh, question right on on twitter um and if if they just knew about recurrence equations they would have got this question uh, right 
so um, why? Because uh, it turns out that you can uh, write A10 as just A9 plus A8. And similarly, you can write A9 as A8 plus A7. So in, in general, uh, if you have uh, An, you can write An as An minus 1 plus An minus 2. And that is exactly what a recurrence equation is. So um, you have uh, some sequence of numbers and uh, the nth number in the sequence can be written as some function of the numbers that came before it in the sequence. So that's that's what a recurrence equation is. And um, this this kind of uh, this this is a very general way of thinking about a sequence of numbers. So uh, I, I had a recurrence equation for this uh, coin toss numbers, but uh, you you can think of a sequence of numbers, uh, for example, uh, uh, the the earnings of a company or something like that. So uh, if if you take a company, uh, maybe its earnings grow at ten percent per year uh, for the first ten years, and then after that uh, the the growth sort of uh, slows down, and the earnings grow at say uh, five five percent per year after that. So if you want to find the earnings of the company uh, in the nth year, um, uh, basically you just take the earnings in the n minus one year and then either multiply it by 1.1 1 .1, uh, for the 10% growth or 1.05 uh, for the 5% growth. So this is the uh, the company's earnings. That That is a sequence of numbers. So every year you get one number for the company's earnings. And then uh, if you want to find the nth number in this sequence, uh, you, you can calculate it if you know what the n minus one number is. Um, so that that uh, so that is a recurrence equation. Uh, so that's a very simple uh, financial model uh, where a recurrence equation already comes into play. Uh, there are many other finance models where uh, recurrence equations are used all the time. So for example, uh, there's this famous model in personal finance. So uh, when, when you're um, uh, when you're working, you, you save money and uh, you hopefully add, add that money uh, into your portfolio and things like that. And uh, that that money grows over time because it's in the portfolio. Now, um, in retirement, you, you take out uh, that money and you, you, you take out a certain amount of money every single year. And and then finance your retirement through this portfolio. So that's uh, that's one very common model for uh, personal finance, both uh, during the earning years and uh, during the retirement years. So if you just take the earning years, uh, what's your portfolio worth at the end of uh, say uh, ten years or something like that? If if you want to calculate that, uh, then essentially uh, there are two two factors that come into play in, into your portfolio. So there is the return that you earned in the 10th year. Uh, so what, whatever your portfolio balance was at the end of nine years, uh, you apply this return uh, to that balance. And uh, th that's the portfolio balance at the end of 10 years. That's the first factor that contributes to your portfolio balance. And the second factor that contributes into your portfolio balance is you constantly keep adding to the portfolio from your savings, right? So whatever you saved in, in the 10th year, that also goes into the portfolio. So the portfolio balance at the end of the 10th year is uh, whatever return you earned on the portfolio balance in the ninth year, plus whatever you saved and added to the portfolio uh, during the 10th year. Uh, so, so this is a very simple recurrence equation that gives you the, uh, the, the balance at the end of uh, the 10th year based on the balance at the end of the ninth year and, and so on. 
So uh, this is a very simple recurrence equation that's used in personal finance. Um, or if you take a mortgage and uh, you, you buy a house with it, uh, how do they calculate what your monthly mortgage payment is? Same concept. So you take whatever the balance you have at the end of month uh, I, and uh, you apply some interest to it. That gets you the balance at the end of uh, month I plus one. Um, but of course, you also make a payment to the mortgage. Um, so so you, you subtract out the payment uh, and then calculate the interest only on the balance. Um, so if you keep doing this, you get a series of recurrence equations. And then if, if you're taking a 30-year mortgage or something like that, what happens is at the end of 30 years, uh, the, this balance has to be equal to zero. So you just solve for that. And uh, that, that gives you the monthly payment that you have to make. Uh, so, so if you know about recurrence equations, you, you can solve mortgages very easily. Um, and uh, mo if you want to do some more advanced math, if you look at the Black-Scholes model, for example. Uh, so what is the Black-Scholes model? The Bla Black-Scholes model is basically just a way to figure out what the price of an option should be. Um, and the whole idea behind Black-Scholes is uh, you, uh, you sort of... Uh, figure out what are all the possible outcomes that can happen uh, at the time the option expires and what is the probability of each. And then uh, when the option expires, uh, the option is either worth a certain amount um, or uh, it's worth exactly zero if it expires worthless. And you calculate the probabilities of uh, uh, these, uh, these different outcomes. And then you basically work backwards from there. So uh, let, let's say this is a, an option that expires in 30 days. So in 30 days from now, I know these are all the possible outcomes and these are all the possible worths that the option can have. Uh, so in 29 days from now, uh, how much should the option be worth? And uh, if I know the worth at uh, 29 days from now, okay, wh what about 28 days from now? And I can work backwards and figure out what the price of the option should be today. So that, that is a very simple model um, for how to calculate the worth of an option or how to calculate w at what price the option should be selling at uh, today in the market. And uh, th that is the Black-Scholes model for which uh, Black and Scholes got a Nobel Prize. And that's essentially uh, a recurrence equation. So, um, so, so if, you, if you know recurrence equations, you can understand all this uh, uh, advanced Nobel Prize winning math as well. Um, so that's that's basically uh, this this whole um, idea of recurrence equations and how they are used in finance and investing. Uh, but more than that, more than just finance and investing calculations, recurrence equations can teach us a lot about problem solving in general. So one key problem solving strategy is if you have a big problem, don't solve the big problem or don't try to solve the big problem uh, all, all at once. That may be too difficult. So try to break down that big problem into smaller sub-problems and those sub-problems into further smaller sub-problems. And eventually you may get some sub-problems that are so simple that you can solve them right away. And then you take the solutions to all these small sub-problems and put them together and you will get the solution to the big problem. This is one standard uh, problem-solving strategy. And recurrence equations are exactly that. So um, when I toss a coin 100 times or 10 times, I, I may not know how many of those outcomes uh, won't have two consecutive tails. That's, that's too difficult for me to uh, reason about uh, two to the 10 or two to the 100 possible outcomes. So I break it down. I say, okay, what if I toss a coin just two times? Then how many of those outcomes uh, won't have two consecutive tails? Okay, 
um, I, I know that when I toss the coin two times, I get four possible outcomes and one of them is going to have two consecutive tails. So three of them won't have two consecutive tails. That's simple enough for me to solve. Okay, then based on that, can I figure out what if I do it three times? Or what if I do it four times and so on? And now, now I, I can, based on some simple logic, I can conclude that, okay, if I do it four times, then um, the the number of uh, outcomes that don't have two consecutive tails is just the the number of outcomes when I uh, at three times plus the number of outcomes at two times. So that I, I can reason about this, and and then this gives me a way to solve the problem for any number of coin tosses. And uh, so so this this whole idea of uh, brick by brick building a house is very very common. Um, in in not just uh, math and computer science and engineering, but also in finance and investing and and all that. A whole host of applications uh, can be solved if you just uh, have a way to break down a big problem into smaller chunks and then solve those smaller chunks. Uh, so so recurrence equations teach you uh, this general problem solving strategy. Um, and the second thing is just uh, learning to count. So we have to count. Uh, efficiently. So what I mean by that is uh, we have to learn the basics of permutations and combinations. Um, so this this was a simple toy example uh, to say, okay, how many how many coin tosses won't have two consecutive uh, tails? This is probably not going to be super useful when you're analyzing a company or something like that. But uh, in general, uh, what are all the number of ways something good can happen? What are all the number of ways something bad can happen? This is very, very, uh, this is a very common way of thinking about a probabilistic situation, right? When you when you invest in a company, what are all the good things that can happen to it, and what are all the bad things that can happen to it, and in how many ways can things go uh, well, and in how many ways can things things go horribly? Um, so if you know the basics of permutations and combinations, uh, you can do all kinds of analysis uh, that you can't do otherwise. And so uh, recurrence equations are one very, very common way to be able to build uh, the number of permutations or number of combinations that, that meet a particular condition. And so uh, working out these toy examples and toy puzzles uh, makes you familiar with this, uh, this whole area of math that can then help you reason about various kinds of outcomes in probabilistic settings like investing. And the third thing is just, if you know um, various areas of math, uh, you just see these connections between different areas. They just come to you. Uh, some some problem, you may be thinking about it in, in one domain. Uh, you find that it has some beautiful connection to just some other domain, which, which is completely unexpected. So for example, this particular coin toss example, um, it, it has deep connections to, to the Fibonacci series and the golden ratio and all these uh, different things. And you would never know any of these things if you, uh, if you didn't know the basic math. Uh, so so I, I like to learn a lot of math and I'm, I'm just uh, curious about math. And if you, if you learn math, um, you, you can see connections between various domains uh, much more easily. This is uh, exactly Charlie Munger's uh, lattice work of mental models. So if you if you have a large number of mental models um, and uh, you 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 read uh, 
the news or something like that. You read about companies, you read about different things. You start seeing connections between these mental models. Uh, so you have a lattice work of theory on which uh, you can interpret how the world works and things like that. Um, and the last thing that this uh, recurrence equations teach you is this whole idea of efficiency. So how, how do you build an efficient solution to a problem? Now, of course, if you have uh, if you have n coin tosses, uh, there are two to the n possible outcomes, right? So you can just list all the two to the n possible outcomes, and you can figure out which which ones have two tails and which ones don't have two tails, and solve the problem that way. So if you add ten uh, coins, you you have ten twenty four possible outcomes. So you list all the ten twenty four, and you figure out which ones meet the condition and which ones don't meet the condition. That, that's great, but then it's horribly inefficient because you, if you had 20 coins, you would now have more than 1 million possible outcomes to list and so on. But if you know this uh, idea of recurrence equations, you can solve the problem much more efficiently. You don't have to list all the 1 million possible outcomes. You can just do 20 simple calculations, simple additions, and then get your answer that way. So uh, when you learn new things, um, new areas of math and things like that, they can help you build efficient solutions to problems, uh, which previously you could only solve in a brute force, uh, inefficient kind of way. So that's very, very elegant. And uh, usually when uh, along with efficiency comes uh, all kinds of special insights. So uh, some, if you have some special insight into a problem, you may be able to construct an efficient solution for it. And once you construct the efficient solution, that solution can give you fresh insights about the problem that you didn't have before. So there is this little virtuous cycle here. And, and so uh, recurrence equations can, can teach us all, all these different things. So uh, that, that, that is basically all that I had uh, about recurrence equations that I wanted to cover in the, uh, at the start of the call. And um, so if you, if you want to uh, ask me any questions or if you want to share your own observations, um, uh, about uh, recurrence equations or about anything else, Buffett's latest letter or whatever, uh, I'll start taking uh, callers now. So the, the next caller is uh, Andy. Hello, can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Yeah, so uh, thank you very much, uh, Tenki, for uh, educating all of us on this interesting mathematical topics which have uh, implications from investment standpoint. Uh, one thing I wanted to understand, uh, when you're trying to project earnings or growth rate of a company, now you see companies, uh, high growth companies, which have very volatile growth rate. Uh, can you take an example and try to explain how this uh, recurrence equation thinking can help us uh, in that. Uh, right, absolutely. So uh, when you have a volatile growth rate, um, then you may not be able to predict what the growth rate will be uh, in advance, or there may be a lot of variability uh, to the prediction. Uh, so so in, in some years, a company may grow at, uh, say, 20%. Uh, in, in the very next year, the company may grow only at 5% because, uh, because the growth rate is so volatile, right? Um, so you, ideally, you would have some view about uh, 
what what is the probability of different kinds of growth rates for for this company so sometimes what happens is uh, uh, so some you may have some external event like covid so if you take a company like zoom for example uh, during covid it, uh, it th- there was a tremendous spurt of growth uh, but that spurt of growth uh, in 2020 um, may have come at the cost of say 2022 growth or something like that uh, simply because the uh, the the growth has sort of been pulled forward in time uh, because of this immediate crisis which is covid uh, so now you have to think about that um, and you have to sort of uh, figure out if you already had a model for uh, zoom growing subscribers and uh, growing um, uh, average revenue per user and uh, all these kinds of metrics that uh, people usually look for in subscription businesses uh, then you sort of have to think about okay how are these things going to be affected as a result of uh, this growth being pulled forward in time and um, so so for example you may decide to model that um, okay zoom uh, i i thought it was going to grow at uh, say 20% per year for a very long time but now i have to revise my expectations because it's already grown bonkers in 2020 and so in in future i'm going to adjust this growth rate uh, downward or something like that uh, so if if you cannot predict that very well for a business then that business might be in your uh, too too hard pile uh, so un- unless the business is available so cheap that uh, you're not really banking on uh, very an enormous amount of growth or anything like that um, you will still be able to make a good return on your investment even if the growth is uh, only modest uh, if the business is like that then you can go and invest in that but um, if in general with a high growth company um, the a lot of the growth tends to be already priced in and uh, so one one way that uh, uh, people like uh, michael moberson and and my my friend uh, borrowed ideas uh, who's uh, who's on twitter uh, one one way they try to analyze companies is to try and they don't try to predict the growth rate but they try to figure out uh, if you take the current market price of the company what is the market think the growth rate is going to be in the future uh, based on uh, whatever the current price is uh, so Uh, if the market is uh, say say pricing this particular stock at $100 per share or something like that then um if if you want a say 7% return or a 10% return from this company um if the market thinks that's what it's going to get at this price then how much should the company grow um and then you can ask yourself okay is this assumption reasonable or not so that that is one common way it's called a reverse dcf um that, that that's one common way you can uh, sort of try to use recurrence equations to uh, figure out what kinds of assumptions are embedded in in the current price um and um, so, so you you if if you agree with those assumptions then uh, there's no advantage uh, in the current price but if you don't agree with those assumptions if you have some kind of differentiated view if you think for example that uh, the company is going to grow much faster than what the market price uh indicates then uh that that may be a, an investment candidate that you can research further and and things like that does that make Thank sense you. yeah no, it, it certainly makes sense i have one follow up question on this uh if sure. i may so uh warren buffett always says that growth is uh, one aspect that you consider while you are looking at different companies so 
when he's looking at value, uh, valuing the company, he always considers uh, growth into that uh, approach, right? The way he tries to value the company. But yes, now, exactly. yeah. So now, I mean, in in investment. Uh, ecosystem right or the community we have a growth company and we have a value company way of looking at things so there is a divergence uh, in terms of uh, value and growth and value people are looking at current state they are looking at p how much uh, company is earning and uh, essentially they are looking at current state of things and then trying to say that okay do i want to get uh, invest a dollar in this so that i can get maybe two dollar or dollar and a half 50 cent. Whereas growth people are looking at far out, right? Maybe 10 years down the line. So in, in this kind of situation, uh, how should one think about uh, recurrence, the concept of recurrence, right? Uh, the equation that we studied. Because in both the cases, we are trying to predict future value, right? But in case one, we are trying to look at current situation uh, and then trying to come up with a number that justifies current state. Whereas in growth, we are trying to uh, predict far out in the future, where we would have a lot of uh, volatility, a lot of unknowns. So how, how do you think about that, uh, uh, that That's a beautiful question. So uh, our previous uh, episode on money concepts was actually about uh, growth and value. So last week we discussed it. Uh, if, if you listen to that episode, you will get a lot of pointers about uh, gro- growth and value if you were not uh, on the call last time. So uh, basically in his 1992 letter, um, Warren Buffett said that uh, value and growth uh, are joined at the hip and that growth is always a component in the calculation of value. And uh, Buffett says this whole idea of splitting stocks or uh, investments or even investors into two categories, growth and value, that is uh, fuzzy thinking. So a stock is uh, is just a future stream of cash flows. Um, so there's no stock that comes with a label that says uh, it's a growth stock or a value stock. Similarly, there's no investor who comes with a label saying he's a growth investor or a value investor. Uh, these are just terms that we use to try and understand um, what what kind of investment this is or what kind of investor a particular person is and, and so on. But Buffett says that may be fuzzy thinking. And the reason is that he goes on to elaborate in his, uh, in his 1992 letter. Uh, he says, uh, look, just because a stock has a low price to book value or a low price to earnings ratio or a high dividend yield or something like that, yeah, does not mean it's a value stock. Um, it does not mean it's a good value for the price that it is trading for in the market. And similarly, just because the price, uh, stock has a high price-to-book value or a high price-to-earnings ratio or a low dividend yield, uh, that does not mean that it's not a value. Uh, so uh, you, you really have to look at both the value that is offered at the current price and uh, the growth that you think this business can exhibit in the future. And based on that, you have to come to some determination as to what the value of the company is today. And is that value greater than the market price or less than the market price? And one one common way of doing this is to look at return on capital. 
So you can have companies that grow very quickly, but uh, the growth uh, requires an enormous amount of capital. And because that growth requires an enormous amount of capital, the return that the company is able to earn on that capital is actually very low. And that may or may not be, uh, that, that may not be a great uh, investment because the company is not able to earn very much on its uh, owner's capital, especially if that capital has to be put up by the owners of the company, uh, then that that is not uh, going to be a very lucrative investment, even if uh, the company is able to grow like uh, crazy. Uh, so so there are these uh, these kinds of uh, calculations that are usually done. So uh, you have to keep, say, three or four variables in mind when you're talking about this growth versus value trade-off. So one important variable is uh, how much capital is there in the company. So uh, that amount of capital is going to vary from year to year. Uh, so each, each year it's going to uh, work on a different amount of capital. The second important variable is what is the return that the company is able to earn on this capital? So um, companies that earn a high return on capital, they will be able to earn $1 uh, with, say, uh, with much less capital. Say, say a, a company with a high return on capital may earn $1 on just $5 of capital, whereas a company with a low return on capital may, may require, say, $20 of capital to earn that same $1. So that's the second variable you have to look at. What is the return on capital? And then the third uh, variable to look at is, okay, uh, the company earns this return on capital. What exactly does it do with this return? So um, does it give it, uh, give it all to investors um, as, as a dividend or something like that? Or is it reinvesting back into its business? And if it is reinvesting back into its business, what's the incremental return that it is able to get on this reinvested capital? So that, that is the third thing to look at. Um, and the fourth thing to look at is, uh, where is this capital going to come from? So uh, a company may be reinvesting back into its business, but all that reinvestment, uh, the capital for that reinvestment may come from issuing debt or um, uh, from suppliers or, uh, or even from customers and, and so on. It may not come from the owners of the company. So uh, these are all the different things to look at. And there is a way to uh, take all these variables. Um, uh, so so the, the, these variables all change from year to year. So uh, in year, uh, year 10, you may have uh, an idea of what all these variables are. And then in year 11, uh, these variables might be uh, completely different. But the year 11 variables uh, will be related to the year 10 variables. Because uh, to take a simple example, if a, if a company uh, earns $1 uh, on its uh, capital, and then it distributes 50 cents to uh, owners and then keeps the other 50 cents for itself uh, to, to uh, grow earnings or something. That means the capital in the company would have gone up by 50 cents, right? So if you know the capital that the company had in the previous year, and if you know how much of the earnings were distributed to owners, uh, you can calculate uh, how much capital the company is going to operate on next year. And that, that is a simple recurrence equation. Uh, so, so, uh, you can construct models of growth and value and things like that. And you can do DCFs uh, based entirely on uh, constructing a series of uh, uh, recurrence equations uh, for a company. And uh, so, so, so if, if you uh, look at this explanation in, in conjunction with the, the previous week's episode, I, I think you'll get a lot of insights into how, how to do this uh, growth versus value modeling using recurrence equations. Thank you. Thank you, Dekke. Absolutely. Uh, so the next uh, caller is uh, Casey, who's a regular caller on the show. 
Oh, sorry. Hi. This is this is, Richards. <laughs> this is not Casey. Sorry about that. Okay. Hi, Tanke. Hey, hello. Okay, I have a question. Um, um, a little bit macro question, but with a uh, interesting twist. So, it's about um, interest rates, and uh, I've heard uh, Buffett multiple times uh, says that the interest rates are like a gravity, and he actually touches it slightly in the slightest uh, letter too. But I, I've never, uh, fa- uh, never seen him explaining in 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 technical details how, right. how it actually works right i i have my own ideas and so i want to you to 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 say do you agree with my ideas or or, or not and maybe you can uh, complement them so okay, sure. um, what are your ideas <laughs> so <laughs> so so the global idea is that interest rates um are closely correlated to um what you can get uh, from um, from fixed income. So when you rise interest rates, you basically make fixed income more um, more good looking, uh, more handsome to, to 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 work with and to, to to invest. So it it's like one 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 place where you can part your money, especially if you have a lot of money. It's a safe safer way. To, uh, to 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 park it uh, uh, as stocks, so so that's uh, basically uh, a competitor for stocks, and, and 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 such it drives stocks prices down. Uh, and um, about um, new companies and tech companies, they say when 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 interest rates rises, it 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 it, it hits hard on their stock price because. And my idea is it's it's because usually these new companies and uh, they have a lot of value generated for shareholders in in the future, and 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 and, and so people usually just automatically uh, makes this uh, um, in this have this um, discount rate bigger. But my my question is why do they why why, why do they do it? And um, idea is that um, all these companies uh, uh, need a lot of capital to 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 operate, and especially if you are a young company, you 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 welcome if you can get capital very cheap or with like close to zero interest. And as soon as uh, capital uh, becomes um, uh, more expensive, it endangers your uh, profits and maybe even your existence. And 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 yeah. So these are my ideas in general. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. So um, you're you're, um, you're almost all the all the way there. I think your understanding is is um, is correct. Um, I would just like to add a few things. Uh, to just make the understanding uh, a little more complete. Uh, so uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Buffett, uh, very often he talks about interest rates as uh, uh, gravity. Um, and uh, uh, so so basically what he means is that when the interest rates uh, get high, uh, what happens is uh, stock valuations uh, come down and the market falls. Uh, so so that, that's why he calls interest rates um, as uh, gravity. 
and uh, he he doesn't explain the whole theory in his uh, letters but there is a standard uh, macroeconomic uh, sort of theory that goes into this so um, you you uh, talked about uh, bonds versus stocks and if if uh, the interest rates are high then what happens is bonds uh, become more attractive uh, than than they were previously as as the interest rates become higher and higher right um, and uh, that is exactly correct uh, and if you look at um, for example aswad damodaran's uh, lectures on youtube uh, he talks about this a lot uh, so let's let's say a company earns 1 1 billion dollars uh, every year okay so the 1 billion dollars doesn't grow or anything like that it's just going to earn 1 billion every single year now uh, if you want a 10% return from this company then uh, how how much can you pay for this company you can pay 10 billion dollars for this company and it will give you 1 billion every year so that's a that's a 10% return uh, but if you want a 12.5% return from this company uh, say then uh, you can pay only 8 billion dollars for this company because um, uh, if if you pay 8 billion dollars and the company earns 1 billion every year uh, then uh you 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 get your 12.5% return so basically uh, the idea is if you insist on a higher rate of return uh for, if you take your return expectations from 10% to 12.5% what happens is the value of the company or the market price of the company uh, falls uh from uh, 10 10 10 billion dollars to 8 billion dollars so uh when investors expect uh or want higher rate of returns from stocks then uh, stocks have to fall uh, if if the future cash flows of these stocks are not going to change so so that that is the basic theory and so when will investors want what kind of returns do investors expect from stocks so obviously if bonds and stocks are uh, yielding the same return uh, then you would prefer a bond compared to a stock uh, simply because uh, a stock is risky whereas a bond is not that risky right um so so there is some uh, extra return that the stocks have to promise to investors in order for the stocks uh, to be uh, equally attractive as bonds so basically the return that the stocks have to give give investors uh, the return from stocks has to be equal to the return from bonds plus some extra return and that that extra return is called a, an equity risk premium and aswadhamadharan has a whole lot of uh, detail on how to estimate equity risk premium and how to calculate uh, discount rates and and things like that so basically the return from stocks has to be equal to the return from bonds plus the equity risk premium uh, or or uh, the risk free rate of return plus the equity risk premium so the return from stocks has two components the equity risk premium and the risk free rate of return now if the risk free rate of return increases because interest rates go up then uh the the expected return from uh, uh stocks also has to go up assuming that the the equity risk premium remains constant right so now investors in a high interest rate environment they expect a higher rate of return from stocks and if they expect a higher rate of return from stocks then what's going to happen is uh, the the price of the stocks has to come down only then they will get that higher return so that's why interest rates act as gravity um the second point that you touched upon is uh, the sensitivity of a company's cash flows uh, to the interest rate you gave the example of a tech company 
right? So um, if if a company is paying regular dividends today, uh, then uh, the, it, it's sensitivity to interest rate changes uh, may be small. So if if you take a simple DCF uh, calculation, you uh, uh, you take the dividends that you get from a particular company and you discount them uh, every year by applying a particular discount rate. Then you you look at how sensitive this DCA value is to the discount rate. It turns out that uh, if all these cash flows come towards the end, uh, so so uh, for the next 15 years, suppose the company is not going to pay a dividend, and uh, so so most of the cash flows uh, from this company are going to come much later in the future. If if the DCF is that that kind of DCF where most of the cash flows come later. Uh, then that tends to be far more sensitive uh, to the discount rate than if uh, a lot of the cash flows come very soon in the next year or something like that. So some DCFs are more sensitive to the discount rate than other DCFs. And so um, tech companies, typically, they are all growing today and they don't really pay a dividend or anything like that. Uh, They are trying to reinvest every single dollar that they have today to achieve some growth. And so tech company DCFs, typically are far more sensitive to discount rates. And discount rate is just, uh, as we said, it's going to be uh, the risk-free rate plus the equity risk premium. And the risk-free rate is basically interest rate. So um, if interest rates rise, the valuation of a tech company uh, is likely to be far more sensitive to that change in interest rate. So for the same change in interest rate, um, a tech company's DCF may be far more uh, sensitive than a more mature companies DCF. Uh, so so that, that is why you, uh, you have to look at that. And the third, uh, uh, the third thing is, that you mentioned is um, uh, access to capital. So uh, companies, um, they, they engage in all, all kinds of growth initiatives and growth projects and so on. And a certain portion of that growth uh, comes from borrowed money. And if companies are able to borrow money for cheap, then uh, they don't have to pay a whole lot in interest. And um, and as a result, their uh, return on equity and return on assets and all that uh, looks much better. Uh, but if they have to pay a lot of money in interest, uh, then uh, their, uh, their returns uh, look poorer uh, simply because there is this uh, huge interest rate expense that is going to uh, make the borrowed capital less attractive. So uh, the future cash flows of a company, when interest rates rise and the company uh, relies a lot on borrowed money, uh, the future cash flows, uh, you can expect those cash flows to decrease uh, as the interest rates increase. And that is another reason why. So so it's not just the denominator, which is the discount rate uh, that's increasing. It's also the numerator, which is the cash flows, which are decreasing. So uh, that is kind of like a double whammy effect. And that's another reason why uh, DCF, uh, the value may decrease uh, when interest rates uh, rise. So so these are all the different uh, ways that interest rates affect the valuation of stocks. Okay. I've, I've seen uh, a couple of Damodaran's uh, uh, lectures on the internet. And um, every time I, 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 I watch them, I... I 
I actually find uh, want to find the answer uh, 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 answer to a question. Does it really make sense? And 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 what does uh, Warren Buffett thinks about these <laughs> methods? <laughs> uh, yeah. So because I, I know that uh, uh, he and Charlie believe that uh, much of uh, of things which are taught in in in, in business schools are complete bullshit sorry <laughs> so but, but 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 maybe yeah what do you think about uh Damodaran's lectures and and what he talks about uh well uh so you're you're putting me in a spot here because Damodaran uh, is a business school professor <laughs> and uh, so if if i say that uh, this is bullshit then uh, i may be agreeing with more more with buffett and munger but if I say this is not bullshit, then I may be disagreeing with them. Okay, you, you can uh, you can not answer. Okay, but, uh, no, I I think Damodaran is um, uh, sort of one one of the uh, more reasonable business school professors. I think when um, when uh, Buffett and Munger say that, uh, generally in 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 business school they they disagree with a lot of the theories that are taught. They usually mean things like the efficient market hypothesis and and things like that uh, more more than what. Uh, Professor Damodaran is teaching. So uh, I think it's useful as a base of theory to understand uh, the points that uh, Professor Damodaran teaches. And he's actually a very good teacher. He's got uh, these wonderful videos on YouTube and he makes these topics so accessible to people, even, even if they don't have a very strong finance background or something like that. You can understand a lot of theory, uh, a lot of economic theory uh, very quickly uh, if you just go through uh, the playlist that uh, Aswadamadharan has on YouTube for free. And and then you can think about, okay, what are the things that uh, in, in this, uh, uh, in, in, these, uh, in this theory, what, what are the things that you agree with? And what are the things that you uh, don't, don't quite agree with Damodharan? And you, you can do that. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a good idea to understand what he's saying uh, before you decide whether uh, you want to take it or leave it. So a lot of people I know, um, they, they have a way of saying, oh, Damodaran, he, he's just uh, too mathematical. Oh, everything he says is just, uh, uh, it, it doesn't work in practice. It's just full of theory and things like that. And then I, I try to probe a little bit deeper and it turns out they haven't actually listened to uh, Damodaran's lectures. They're just uh, just because he's a business school professor, uh, immediately they're saying, okay, this guy, what he says is not practically relevant. So that that is also not right. I mean, before trying to criticize somebody, uh, you sort of have to understand what their position is. And so um, I, I have learned a lot from Damodaran's lectures. I don't agree with everything he says. And uh, sometimes uh, the, the kinds of things he uh, says about cost of capital, for example, uh, there are many different approaches that you can take to evaluate a company's cost of capital. And uh, in some cases, uh, Damodaran may prefer one particular approach, but I may prefer a slightly different approach and so on. There's always going to be these differences. But by and large, uh, Damodaran does a good job of covering the basic theory and not just covering the basic theory, but also pointing out that his approach is not the only possible approach and there are many different approaches and where you can learn those other approaches and things like that. So I think it's it's very, I think people can learn a lot by going through his video lectures. Okay, thanks, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, so the, the next caller uh, is really Casey. Uh, 
Yeah, hi, Tinke. Um, hey. I would ask you more questions about uh, your topic today, the uh, reoccurrence equations, but I didn't do enough research, and it's a bit esoteric, as you mentioned in your Twitter thread. So start with you. I'll just ask you a few uh, general uh, investing questions. Um, sure. But before I do that, I was wondering, would you be willing to reveal to all of us what your first name is so we can call you uh, call you by that instead of a, a form the SEC requires we, we fill out? Uh, well, um, unfortunately, uh, I cannot reveal that. And the reason I cannot reveal that is because um, uh, my, my employer has some very strict social media policies. And th that's why my uh, account has to be anonymous as well. And I, I have to be anonymous. It's much easier to follow all my employer's rules <laughs> if, if I stay anonymous. Come on, Tinke. We want you to take the plunge and become a professional full-time uh, marketer of your investing ideas and a professional investing uh, uh, equity uh, person yourself. So you need, to, you need to, to take the full plunge. Right. So, so uh, you know, b burning uh, bridges with my employer <laughs> is a great way to do that. <laughs> All right. So my first question is, uh, if you've read the, uh, the report that Berkshire released yesterday, um, you have the four giants, Berkshire, uh, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, BNSF, Apple, and the insurance group. You obviously uh, know a lot about Berkshire, and I, I, I tend to assume that you're an investor in Berkshire. Correct me if I'm wrong. If you had to, to take a a stab for fun at which which of those four giants would perform the worst and which of those four giants would perform the best over the next five to 10 years. Would you care to speculate on what your thoughts are of those four, four, four giants and uh, which ones will do better or worse? Uh, absolutely. So, um, yes, you're right. I'm, I'm a, a Berkshire investor. So, uh, I mean, I, I I don't manage other people's money or anything like that. So it's just uh, our family's uh, money that I manage. And uh, our biggest position is Berkshire, which makes up uh, uh, roughly a third of our portfolio, although that, that keeps going up and down as, uh, as as both Berkshire and the rest of the portfolio keep uh, fluctuating in value. Um, so, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, uh, so I... Buffett released both both the both the letter uh, and the annual report the the 10k um, yesterday and uh, I have uh, already gone through the letter but I have not fully read the 10k um, so in the in the letter uh, he he talks about these uh, four four giants of uh, Berkshire so one one is the insurance operations uh, the 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 second is uh, the uh, equity position in Apple, which is uh, counted as a marketable security on the balance sheet. Uh, the third giant is uh, BNSF, I believe, the railroad. And the fourth one, um, uh, 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 the, the, well, the insurance operations, Apple, BNSF, and then the energy operations, the, the Berkshire Hathaway energy. That's the fourth uh, giant. Uh, now, if you just look at uh, uh, the the uh, the the four four um, giants, uh, three of them are highly regulated. So insurance is highly regulated, uh, BNSF is highly regulated, and uh, um, the energy operations are of course highly regulated. Uh, Apple is the only one that's not regulated, right? Um, so I my guess is that just based on return on capital. Apple is going to uh, do reasonably well going forward. And I would not be surprised if uh, out of all these operations, 
uh, Apple uh, is is the best performer o- over the next uh, several years. Um, so if if you look at Berkshire Hathaway Energy, for example, um, in in a lot of markets like uh, Iowa and so on, where they conduct electricity operations, uh, they are regulated in how much they can charge. They can't just uh, increase the price of electricity willy-nilly as they uh, seem like. They, they have to get a particular return on capital, say something like 10% return on capital or some, something like that. And uh, that, that's basically all they are allowed to earn. So their earnings are uh, sort of capped. Whereas um, with Apple, uh, Apple can charge wh- whatever uh, it, uh, it it wants for an iPhone um, and um, Apple Music and iCloud and wh- whatever it sells. So uh, there's there's no cap on how much Apple can earn or any anything like that. Um, so so th- that's my reason for saying I I think Apple will do uh, probably I think Apple will do better than the others in this uh, lineup. Uh, insurance is a very interesting, uh, so insurance is the biggest giant in, in Berkshire. And that's a very interesting kind of model because it's very, very hard to predict how an insurance company will do. So just, just because an insurance company makes, say, uh, profits for 10 years, does not mean that uh, you can predict what the profits will be in the 11th year. So it may be insuring some huge risk like a hurricane or something like that. And that hurricane may not uh, hit for 10 years and it may hit in the 11th year. And then um, in the 11th year, the the hurricane may wipe out the previous 10 years worth of profits. And so so it's very, very hard uh, to run an insurance company conservatively. And uh, so I don't have a whole, I I trust Berkshire to uh, do a good job at running the insurance company. But I I would, uh, as far as, uh, I can say this insurance operation, um, for me at least, is the least predictable of Berkshire's many operations. And uh, so, so uh, I think Ajit Jain and others, uh, who, and Buffett and others, they, they understand insurance really well, and they, they are doing a good job, and they've, uh, they've obviously done a tremendous job growing float and earning an underwriting profit all these years, and they seem to manage it conservatively. But if you ask me to predict what the long-term economics of this insurance business will be, um, I, I may not be able to predict it that well. Uh, so so um, of, of all these uh, four giants, I think Apple will, will do the best. Um, I, I think the insurance is uh, hard to predict. So it may do really well or it may do poorly. I, I don't really know. It's hard to predict. Um, BNSF and BHE, they, they will grow roughly at the same rate as the uh, broader economy and, and things like that. Um, BHE may do slightly better than BNSF because uh, BHE is uh, putting in uh, all these uh, new projects um, uh, in uh, uh, climate conscious initiatives like wind energy and solar energy and all that. And uh, at least for the time being, all these kinds of projects, they come with enormous amounts of tax credits and things like that. Uh, so BHE has those advantages that uh, BNSF doesn't quite have. So BHE may do slightly better than BNSF, but I think th- they both will do r- roughly similarly um, as, as the, s- similar to the rate of the broad, uh, growth in the broader economy and things like that uh, go- going forward. So that, that would be my prediction. But of course, you, you have to take it with a giant uh, grain of salt because uh, you know, this is a prediction about the future and I may be completely wrong. <laughs> Also, uh, yeah, I understand. Um, 
it's interesting, you know, with Apple, you know, some might say it's a little bit overpriced, so that could drag down future returns, much like uh, maybe much like Coca-Cola. He held on to it despite it knowing that it would reduce uh, or its returns would would, would uh, not be nearly as good as the, the previous decade. Um, are you going to uh, just act, are you going to attend the uh, the the uh, annual meeting? Uh, I don't think I'm going to attend the annual meeting because uh, we we recently got a puppy and uh, the oh, puppy nice. is taking up all my time. <laughs> so I don't think I can leave it and go and attend the annual meeting. Okay. All right. Uh, one more question. I'll let uh, Vinuth uh, come in. Um, so uh, Charlie Munger talks about how a stock's performance, you hold a stock long enough, um, the, perf- the, the performance of your returns will will match the underlying business itself. And so when, when he yes. says that, that broad statement, uh, can you reduce that basically down to saying that if a company over the last, say, five or 10 years has grown their bottom line earnings or net income at 10% over however many years, over term, the stock will increase by 10% year? Is he strictly referring to the net income growth of the company or what is he referring to when he says the underlying business? Uh, right. So uh, Charlie Munger is referring to... Uh, what is uh, known as, uh, well, either owner earnings or free cash flow or something like that, because companies can have a lot of net income, but then they can generate very little cash. So uh, if all the net income uh, needs to be constantly reinvested back into the company and no cash is available for the owners to uh, sort of withdraw from the company, then that, that is not really a great company to invest in, even if net income uh, can the reported net income can grow year after year. Uh, but um, if, if you have a company that doesn't have that much growth in net income, but every dollar of net income can be distributed uh, to to the owners uh, as dividends uh, each year or something like that, uh, then that may be a very capital efficient operation. And so investors may get a good result out of that. Uh, but Charlie Munger's uh, uh, assertion that over a long period of time, uh, an investor in a company will uh, essentially earn whatever the company earns on its capital. Uh, That assertion uh, has to come with some uh, uh, asterisks uh, attached to it. Uh, And uh, one important asterisk is that Charlie Munger assumes that this company is able to reinvest uh, back into its own operations. Uh, and if, if a company is not able to reinvest back into its own operations at that high rate of return that it is earning, then an investor, uh, the return that an investor gets and the return that a company gets on its capital uh, will, will, will differ. And the difference is basically uh, how much, uh, it's based on how much uh, an investor overpays uh, for that high return on capital. So to take a simple example, if, if a company has, say, $1, $1 billion uh, of capital and it earns $1 billion uh, every year, so that's a 100% return on capital, right? Uh, so, um, but suppose this company is not able to reinvest any capital at that 100% return. So it just takes this entire $1 billion and returns it to shareholders every year. It doesn't do any reinvestment or anything like right. that because it, it can't. Then... Uh, the return an investor gets from buying this company uh, will be largely based on the price he pays. Because if the investor pays, say, uh, $2 billion for this company, then uh, the investor uh, pays $2 billion, but he gets back $1 billion every year. So that's a 50% return for the mm-hmm. investor, right? Uh, 
the company is earning 100% return on capital the investor makes only 50% and no matter how long the investor holds the company uh, he he's not going his returns are not going to approach 100% because he overpaid and the company is not reinvesting back into itself but if the company were reinvesting back into itself at that 100% return every single year um, then uh, it, it, it would essentially double its earnings every year so the, the first year it had 1 billion of capital and earns 1 billion mm-hmm. but this entire 1 billion has gone back into the company so the second year it has 2 billion dollars of capital on which it earns 2 billion and so on so every year the earnings double um then uh what charlie munger says is it doesn't really matter what price the investor pays at the beginning for this company if the investor holds this company long enough and uh if the company also earns uh, also keeps growing its earnings at the same rate for that period of time then the investors uh, return from this company will approach 100% per year uh but that is only if this reinvestment uh, is true and if the return on reinvestment remains the same uh for a long time uh so so those are the kinds of asterisks that uh, have to be put next to this charlie mugger statement okay well thanks for explaining that so with the other and uh, talk to you later okay absolutely so the the next uh, uh, caller is vinod Hi, Tanke. Hey. Hey. Uh, I have a two question. Uh, basically, uh, this recurrence equation. Uh, have you seen any? Uh, I know there are multiple applications you talked about in the call. Have you seen anything uh, uh, related in in Berkshire Holder uh, Letter or maybe any other uh, the uh, like my the likes of Michael Mavis and people like. Uh, those people like who, who 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 can take it into the next level in terms of applying these in terms of modeling the uh, business growth um that is my first question and the second sure. question is on uh, the return on capital uh, talked about this uh, multiple times um do you use uh, at a first like when you try to identify uh, securities uh, companies basically it is worth for further analysis would you glance in like the websites like quick fs try to understand the uh, the numbers like return on capital employed and things like that before you do i know your way of calculating the return on capital uh, might be better understanding or the deep understanding building a deep understanding on the business and then trying to do uh, do some detailed calculations but uh, beginner like us or maybe like me uh, at least um, how do we approach or is there is any alternative variable that we can think of which is close to uh, the return on capital or if you want to uh, maybe start something uh, some work need to be done uh, if we can give some level of guidance in terms of how we can calculate the return on capital uh, i can give you an example like look through example uh, sorry look through earnings in your thread i think this is a, uh, that's a wonderful way of uh, beginners to get started with that in terms of giving some examples and also trying to understand the eps and the dividend and then we are able to i was able to build that model completely uh, in terms of uh, the other set of companies as well maybe similarly if you can give some some guidance on return on capital uh, maybe fairly established businesses uh, 
uh, which basically we can get started that would be a really a uh, good way of uh, understanding this return on capital thanks Tenke. that's all from my side uh, right absolutely so so the first question is uh, have have i seen these recurrence equations uh, being used in um, you know mobson's work or buffett's work or anything like that so uh, buffett in his letters uh, he doesn't get a whole lot uh, technical and uh, he he likes to keep uh, the the math uh, to, to uh, sort of a level that he thinks um, would appeal to would be understandable by a whole whole lot of people so uh, buffett doesn't really get into too much math in his uh, in his letters at least uh, so i haven't seen um, recurrence equations or anything like that um, from uh, from him um, except that sometimes he talks about things like for example how does inflation affect the value of a company and what he is doing is essentially analyzing the economics of the business uh, uh, looking at the one one year forward economics of a business in an era of inflation and you can argue that okay he's basically constructing the economics of the business for next year based on the previous year and so that that is a recurrence equation even if he doesn't actually call it a recurrence equation in his analysis uh, so so that that's one thing with uh, with these math uh, concepts is that uh, mathematicians usually give all kinds of complicated names uh, to to these concepts so recurrence equation itself is kind kind of a complicated name um, so they, you you have things like when when you read a standard math textbook it will have all these definitions and uh, you know we we will just say two things are equal right but uh, mathematicians uh, what does equality really mean they they will call uh, uh, they they will say two things are isomorphic to each other and they are not equal to each other and uh, so, so uh, if you ask me ha- have you seen this concept of isomorphism being used uh, in in investing <laughs> i will say no nobody calls it isomorphic in the investing world everybody just says two things are equal to each other <laughs> right uh, so so it's just a terminology thing um, so if you look at michael moberson's work for example he's got this wonderful paper called the math of value and growth and if you if you go through uh, moberson's math in that paper uh, the math of value and growth essentially what he's doing is he's constructing a recurrence equation and solving it but if you uh, search that pdf for the word recurrence equation uh, you will never see it because uh, he doesn't call it that uh, but that that's the concept that's what he's using so a uh, lot of these math concepts once you learn the core concept you will see that being used all over the place but then um, they may not call it that so that that's the first um, thing uh, then the second um, question is uh, more uh, of a practical uh, thing which is uh, yes uh, in order to invest in a company you sort of have to deeply understand its economics but how do you uh, quickly look at the financials of a company and uh, try to build some snapshot judgment of it to just to see whether uh, you want to study this company further or you don't want to study this company um because there are only a limited num- number of companies that we can study in in the time that we have available so we have to have some way to filter uh which companies make that cut and which companies don't make that cut um so uh, i i do look at return on capital uh from you you pointed out that uh, quick fs is a great tool uh, 
Uh, and yes, absolutely. So for those of you who are uh, who, who don't know about QuakeFS, uh, QuakeFS is this website where you can go and uh, type in the ticker for a company and it'll give you the last 10 years of financials. So you can look at the last 10 years of balance sheet and income statement and cash flow statement and, and things like that. And QuakeFS does a very good job of doing that, uh, at least for US listed uh, companies. Now, um, there's also another website that I use called Ticker. And uh, we, we had the CEO of uh, Ticker, Sahil Ketpal, on one of these uh, Money Concerts episodes a few weeks ago. And uh, uh, Ticker, Ticker also gives you a lot of uh, information. And uh, I, I also uh, use Ticker a lot in trying to um, uh, trying to just look at the financials of companies and trying to understand if this is a company that I want to study further. And so what exactly do I do? In, so in about 15 minutes or so, I can tell whether I want to study this company further or not. And so what exactly do I do in those uh, 15 minutes? Uh, that I think anybody can do. Anybody who has access to either QuickFS or Ticker uh, can, can do what I do in those 15 minutes to try and understand uh, a company. So essentially what I do is I look at some common things on the, on the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement. And then I decide whether, okay, I want to study this company further or not. Uh, so let's start with the income statement. So the first thing in the income statement is the revenue line. First, I like to look at whether revenue has been growing or uh, has been roughly steady or has been declining for the last 10 years or something like that. Now, uh, the best thing, of course, is to find that revenue has been growing. Uh, I don't like to invest in companies that are in secular decline. So if the if the revenues have been declining for 10 years, uh, I, I generally won't even look at that company uh, simply because it's it's too hard uh, to invest in melting ice cubes and make money. So I, I don't do that. The next thing I look at is uh, uh, operating leverage. Does this company have operating leverage or not? So operating leverage is basically if revenue increases 10%, how much does income, net income increase? So if revenue increases 10% and net income increases, say, 20%, then this company has operating leverage. For the same, uh, for a 10% increase in revenue, income increases by 20%. That's that's a good thing. So I generally, over a long period of time, I look at what is the revenue growth and what is the income growth and has the income growth outpaced revenue growth. That's one thing I like to look at. Uh, then I like to look at whether gross margins have remained steady with time or not. So generally, companies that uh, have a lot of control over their environment, they are able to keep gross margins fairly steady with time or in, in, even grow them with time. Uh, but uh, companies that, are, that don't have control over their environment, uh, if you look at their gross margins, they tend to uh, fluctuate all over the place. So I like to see steady gross margins. Um, then, then I look at uh, uh, per share results because ultimately when you're an investor, uh, you don't care what the total uh, net income of the company or something like that is beyond a point. You you care about uh, the per share results of the company. So if the shares outstanding of the company are growing very fast, uh, so if the, if the company is giving out a lot of uh, stock-based compensation uh, to employees and the share count is increasing too quickly, uh, then I don't like to invest in those companies. So that th those are the basic things that you can get from the, from the income statement. Um, uh, uh, revenue growth, operating leverage, gross margins, shares outstanding. Uh, then I like to look at the balance sheet. Um, so in, in the balance sheet, I'd like to figure out, 
okay, so in, the income statement already tells me how much this company earns. The balance sheet will tell me how much capital is required for these earnings. And I try to find out what the return on capital is. Um, so uh, if a company earns, uh, say, say uh, $1 per share, and it requires $3 per share of capital to do it, uh, then that's a 33% return on, uh, uh, on on capital, right? And that, that that is a very good return on capital. Uh, so, so the balance sheet tells me uh, not, not only how much capital the company needs, but also how much of this capital has to come from the owners, uh, which is equity capital, and how much of it is uh, debt and other things. And if the company has debt and so on, I try to see what the interest payments are, and uh, um, the interest payments should be much, much lower than the cash flows that the company can generate, and so on. Uh, then I look at the cash flow statement. The cash flow statement basically tells me, um, okay, the the company the the, in, the income statement tells me how much a company uh, reported in earnings, but uh, the cash flow statement uh, tells me what fraction of these reported earnings. Uh, is actually converted into cash that the owners can take out of the business each year. So um, some, sometimes uh, companies can earn, report a lot of earnings on their income statement, but then all this earnings goes to increasing inventory or uh, increasing receivables or something like that. And so uh, if all these earnings go to increase uh, inventory, uh, that means cash has not really increased that much. And uh, if cash has not increased, uh, then there's no cash available to distribute to the owners, right? So uh, you can report all the earnings you want, but all the earnings are just going to show up as an increase in inventory. And uh, unless you're growing those earnings uh, at, at a fast rate or something like that, you need this all this extra inventory because you plan to sell more in the future or something like that. Uh, that that's not really a, a good sign, right? Uh, so, so I look at how much of the earnings are actually converted to cash in, in the cash flow statement. So a simple way to look at that is to just look at the operating cash flow, uh, look at the free cash flow. And um, over the years, if uh, free cash flow uh, and net income, uh, free cash flow growth and net income growth are roughly similar to each other and, and so on, then this might be a good candidate for investing. But there are also many companies that don't have any free cash flow um, because every dollar of operating cash flow is being reinvested back into the operations. But if that is the case, then I want to see uh, revenue growth and net income growth uh, over time, because if the company is reinvesting more and more into the company, uh, that reinvestment had better produce some growth, right? Um, so, so I look at that. Um, and so this, this is basically all I do in those uh, 15 minutes of time that I spend uh, analyzing a company. And if the company, um, if a lot of these, uh, uh, if I see, if, if I like what I see in these uh, 15 minutes, if all these uh, conditions on operating leverage and free cash flow growth and all this are met, then uh, I, I maybe I get the 10K and uh, delve deeper into the economics of the company or some, something like that. So th that's basically all I do. Uh, and I, I think anyone armed with the QuickFS and Ticker, anybody who has these tools can can do this. This is not uh, this is not rocket science. I'm not setting up and solving recurrence equations or anything like that. Uh, so, so I think anybody can do this. Perfect. Great. Great. Uh, thanks, uh, 10K, for all your insights. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, so the next caller is uh, Andy again. Hey, MK. Uh, thank you very much for all the insights. Uh, I have a few questions. Uh, one thing I wanted to uh, understand is around asset allocation. 
so how do we like uh, what would you recommend right or what how should one think about uh, structuring your portfolio and this could this could entail questions like uh, how many stocks you need to have in your portfolio or how how that portfolio split should look like uh, that is my one that is first question the second question uh, monish pobrai is a he likes to call himself as someone who copies uh, charlie munger and warren buffett uh, right. and he he is coming from technology background right so he had his it company and he sold it off and then he started uh, in this investment world but right. he is not he does not like to invest in technology firms so i i I'm kind of confused because technology is his uh, circle of competence, and I'm trying to understand why he doesn't like technology companies or what are the things one should consider uh, for investment which doesn't gel well with uh, technology companies. And uh, the third question is around uh, asset-heavy and asset-light businesses, right? I mean, a few minutes ago you were talking about. Uh, I guess BSNF, one of uh, Warren Buffett's uh, portfolio uh, stock, and uh, it, based on his re uh, recent letter, it holds the largest infrastructure uh, of any any other company, right? Like largest American infrastructure holder. So, uh, how right. do you think about this asset-heavy versus asset-like companies? Uh, because technology is all asset like companies right it's all about intellectual kind of things so how do you go about uh, that thought process so those, those are my three questions uh, sure absolutely uh, so the first question is about uh, portfolio construction and how many stocks uh, an investor needs to have in the portfolio and uh, th that is a great question but uh, it's not just uh, the number of stocks that an investor has to worry about uh, if, if if I have, say, uh, 10, 10 stocks in my portfolio, but all the 10 are oil and gas companies or something like that, they're all uh, uh, dependent on the on the price of oil or some, something like that. There is one underlying variable. And uh, that makes all the, uh, the long-term economics of all these 10 companies are going to be correlated to that one variable. Then it, it doesn't really matter how many uh, stocks I have. Uh, they're, they're all highly correlated. So... More than uh, when trying to build a diversified portfolio, uh, the most important question to understand is, uh, are the companies in the portfolio correlated or uncorrelated? And if they are correlated, are they positively correlated or negatively correlated? And to what extent are they correlated? Um, so, um, so, so if you, if you have, to, if you understand these questions, uh, then uh, you, you can think about uh, whether you're comfortable with the level of diversification you have or not. So sometimes you may, you may have only five stocks in your portfolio, but you, you may be perfectly comfortable. I, I know investors who have uh, only five stocks or, or four stocks in their portfolio, and they're perfectly comfortable because they, uh, they, they, they think that all these stocks are in the long term. They are uh, highly uncorrelated to one another. Um, so, uh, so, and, and there are investors who have lots of stocks in their portfolio, but they may be much more correlated to each other. So it's not just the number of stocks. It's also the correlation between them. Uh, the second question is about uh, uh, Monish Pabrai. 
and uh, yes he has called himself a, a shameless cloner and uh, he has um, uh, a lot of experience in in technology in the tech uh, sector uh, but I, i i don't know if you um, if you would say he doesn't invest in tech at all or anything like that because if you look at his portfolio today um, i think a big part of uh, his portfolio is uh, micron right and uh, micron is a is a tech company i mean uh, uh, at least but most people if they if you if you had to ask whether micron is a tech company or not they would say yes micron is a is a tech company right um the second uh, big position that he had until recently was uh, alibaba um, but i believe uh, recently he sold alibaba and uh, decided to put this money on on tencent or something like that and both alibaba and tencent uh they they are both kind of tech companies in in china right uh, so i i don't know if uh, you can say monish pabrai doesn't invest in tech or in anything like that uh but the i i think the whole idea behind uh why you shouldn't invest in tech uh, so a lot of people who follow buffett and munger uh they uh, they they have these blinders on and they say no no we we don't like to invest in tech companies because we follow uh, buffett and munger but that's not really what buffett and munger are saying what buffett and munger are saying is we want durable long term competitive advantages and it's just that in tech things change so quickly that it's very difficult for a company to have these ad- and number two it's very difficult for outsider to look at these companies and figure out which company has these advantages and which company doesn't have these advantages so if you understand the sector uh, better uh, than others and if you think a particular company has uh, strong long term competitive advantages um, and it's going to be able to preserve its return on capital for a long time and and so on um, then it doesn't matter whether it's a tech company or not a tech company as long as it has these characteristics economic characteristics so that's really what buffett and munger are uh, are saying uh, they uh, they have historically they have shunned away from tech but that's not because they don't un- uh, they, they don't um, like this entire sector or anything like that it's just because they haven't been able to find investments that meet their uh, criteria uh, and and these days of course uh, buffett's uh, biggest stock position is apple and uh, uh, apple is uh, probably you know the poster child of a tech company uh, so so it's just that apple now uh, um, buffett and munger have come to the conclusion that apple has these characteristics even though it's a tech company and they've invested in apple uh, because it has these characteristics not because it's a tech company or not a tech company uh, then the third question was about asset heavy versus asset light and uh, yes so in the early days of uh, berkshire when they invested in uh, seas candies and um, uh, things like that uh, um, coca cola and so on um, warren buffett was looking for asset light uh, business models and uh, it's very simple uh, the reason why he was doing that is because warren buffett first and foremost is interested in return on capital so if he contributes 100 dollars of capital um, how much return can he make on that 100 dollars if he can make 20 dollars that's a 20% return if he can make 25 dollars uh, that's a 25% return and he wants to maximize 
return on capital. Uh, but the problem is, um, if you have more and more capital, uh, increasing returns on capital, it's, it's much easier to earn, uh, say, a 10% return on $1 billion of capital than it is to earn the same 10% on $100 billion of capital. So that's the reason why he was uh, looking at asset-like businesses, because asset-like businesses tend to have higher returns on capital than asset-heavy businesses. And also asset-like businesses tend to be more robust to inflation and and things like that uh, compared to asset-heavy businesses. So these are the reasons he was looking at uh, asset-heavy versus asset-light. Uh, but over a period of time, it became harder and harder to invest in asset light businesses, um, uh, I, I either uh, buy them outright or uh, through uh, buying stocks uh, of these businesses. Uh, because Berkshire had this enormous amount of capital uh, that it has to put to work every year. And every year it's earning a huge amount of capital and it has to find ways to invest this capital. So. Uh, over a period of time, if, if you have billions and billions of dollars and you have to invest uh, these billions, uh, if you, you have to buy assets, right? Uh, then, so, so you kind of have to invest in asset-heavy uh, businesses over a period of time. And that's exactly what has happened at Berkshire. And uh, so the BNSF is a very asset-heavy business. And uh, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, the utility operation, is extremely uh, capital-intensive and asset-heavy. And uh, uh, because they have an enormous amount of assets, uh, they have to earn a return on those assets. And uh, an asset-heavy business that earns some return is better than uh, keeping it all in cash that earns 0% return or whatever. So they invest in asset-heavy businesses. Uh, does, does that answer the question? Yes, uh, thank you, Devke. Uh, sure. So the next uh, caller is uh, uh, Energize. Hey, can you hear me? Sorry, I was on uh, mute. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we can hear you. Yes, uh, well, thank you so much for your work, 10K. Uh, the question is, of the large, very, very mega large tech companies that we have, the Googles, Facebooks, Amazon, Microsoft, which one do you like in terms of its um, highest barrier to entry or competitive advantage? Um, do you have, even if you have more than one, uh, please talk about it. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. So um, these um, mega tech companies, um, I, I think they all have uh, strong moats. And um, so so uh, Amazon, for example, uh, it's very, very hard for me to visualize uh, so, somebody unseating uh, Amazon uh, just because of its dominant position in not just one area, but in th- three different areas. So uh, retailing and AWS and uh, these days entertainment uh, through prime and things like prime video and things like that. And, and also through, uh, through Kindle and uh, all its business ventures. And these days it's becoming an advertising powerhouse and and so on. And similarly, it's very hard for me to imagine somebody unseating Google because Google has like six or seven products that have more than a billion users worldwide. So there's uh, the Google search, there is uh, Google maps, there is YouTube, there's uh, Chrome, Android, and and um, one other uh, Google product that the, uh, Gmail. Yeah, so so six products right there that have more than a billion 
users, right? It's very hard for me uh, to imagine somebody coming and unseating Google. So, so I think all these companies, uh, they, they have uh, strong moats. Um, Facebook's moat may be a little weaker than the others, um, but still they, they have so much of data on so many people and they are such a great place for uh, advertising dollars to flow through that um, I, I think they're all uh, very, very entrenched into our lives. Um, but at the same time, if you, uh, if you look at any kind of um, uh, list of the biggest companies, uh, say, uh, if, if you listed all the biggest companies 50 years ago and look at the list uh, today and see how many of those companies that were the largest and most successful companies uh, 50 years ago are still there today. Uh, the, the history of capitalism is very, very brutal. So just because I can't really see a way uh, to unseat Google doesn't mean that uh, Google is still going to be here 50 years from now. Somebody else who's smarter than me may figure out a way to unseat Google and, and so on. So uh, that, that is the first point. And the second point is uh, the question of price. So uh, yes, I mean, uh, you, you can have a company that's, uh, that's got a very strong moat, very difficult to dislodge and earns high returns on capital. Uh, but if you want to make money from this, uh, from investing in this company, uh, a great business may or may not correspond to a great stock. So uh, it's, it's possible to overpay for a stock and, uh, and so do badly. Uh, even though the business is a great business. So if you want more pointers about this, I suggest you read uh, Chris Broom, Bloomstrand's letter. Uh, not this year's letter, which just came out, but last year's letter. And uh, uh, in, in that letter, uh, Chris Bloomstrand talks about uh, Microsoft. So Microsoft is a wonderful business, great business. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it's earned very high returns on capital and it's had great growth and all that all these years. Uh, but... Uh, if you had bought Microsoft um, at 70 times earnings or something like that uh, during the uh, just just before the dot com uh, crash, uh, it would have taken you uh, something like uh, 15 years or something like that just to uh, break even on your investment. So uh, Microsoft is a great company and was a great company in in those years, but it's just that uh, an investor who overpaid for the stock. Um, uh, would have had to wait a very long time uh, to realize a meaningful return from the investment. So, um, so these modern tech companies may be great uh, from a from a defensibility and moat standpoint and from a business standpoint, but you should all, also always ask yourself if the stock is a good value when when you're trying to invest in these companies. Uh, does does that answer the question? Yeah, thank you very much. Excellent point. And can you please repeat the paper that you suggested? Uh, so I actually suggested a letter, the annual letter by Chris Bloomstrand. Okay, thank you. Sure. We'll Google that. Thank you. Appreciate sure. it. Uh, so then next question comes from uh, Ravi. Thank you. Hello. Can you hear me? Thank you. Uh, yes, I can. I can hear you. Okay. Thank you for hosting this uh, uh, webinar. Um, um, my question is: uh, uh, I feel right now the 
US market. All over US market is expensive. Uh, number two, central bank is going to increase the interest rate, uh, and we have inflation. Um, so, I'm thinking like if I invest more on the international market, uh, that is a better option or not? And more of the question, uh, on further question on that, uh, if I invest in the China technology companies where the valuation is uh, not expensive. Uh, yes, uh, regulatory risk is there. And, and there is a VIE structure for that. So it's worth it to take that risk uh, and invest in China uh, technology stock, more specific to like Alibaba or Tencent. There's a uh, great uh, technology company in China. Uh, sure, sure. So th those are the two questions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. Uh, so, so the U.S. versus the international uh, market. It's always a good idea to be um, well diversified in our portfolios. And um, the well, a lot of U.S. companies actually have exposure to international markets. So, if you if you invest in a company like Starbucks, for example. Star Starbucks mm -hmm. has enormous operations in, in China. And uh, they, they've said many times that uh, the future growth of Starbucks is going to come uh, largely from, from places like China. And mm -hmm. uh, so, so uh, or if you invest in Apple, uh, Apple sells an enormous num number of iPhones uh, in, in, uh, in other parts of the world, not, not just in the, in the US. And if you look at Google or Amazon or any, any of these large companies, they have um, a, a big part of their uh, operations uh, are outside the US in, in uh, Europe and Asia and uh, Africa and all, all these places. They're, they're uh, truly uh, global companies. So if you want international exposure, it's not necessary to go and invest in international companies, although you can do that as well. Um, but there are many U.S. companies as well uh, that give you um, international exposure. So if you're just looking for uh, diversification, then uh, you may be able to um, diversify yourself pretty adequately just by investing in U.S. companies. Now, the second question is price. So if you believe that U.S. companies are very expensive at the moment, and so that's why you want to invest in international markets, not, not necessarily for the diversification, but just for uh, the returns and the margin of safety and things like that. Um, well, yes, I mean, the, the U.S. stock markets, uh, um, even after the recent uh, pullback, uh, they, they are at a fairly high level. Uh, but uh, if, if you're an active investor, uh, if you analyze a large number of uh, U.S. companies, uh, th th there's a good chance that you, you will come up with uh, at least a few companies that are trading uh, on reasonable valuations. But if you're not able to do that, and if you if you think there's an international uh, company that is uh, that you are able to find that is trading at a very good valuation and that has uh, all these uh, durable competitive advantages and things like that, uh, sure, you can definitely go ahead and invest in those companies. Uh, the, the other thing that you have to consider when you're, uh, there, there are two important extra considerations that you have to pay when you're um, uh, investing in international companies. One is the 
regulatory environment so um, in international companies you know um, sometimes when they report financials and things like that uh, they don't have the same regulatory structure that the that the us has so uh, you have to take a call on whether uh, you trust those finances as much or you uh, i mean uh, the if if you just look at the recent events uh, what, what's happening in ukraine and russia and all these things uh, there were plenty of uh, value investors uh, even uh, five uh, f- five or six months ago uh, claiming that uh, look all these russian stocks are uh, trading at a very very uh, cheap valuation uh, rosneft and yandex and all these companies they were trading at a very good valuation and so i'm going to invest in these russian companies but then on the on the day that russia declared a war on ukraine um, the, these companies uh, the, the stocks of these companies fell you know 20% 30% something like that in a in a single day so you have to look at uh, sort of uh, broader geopolitical concerns and uh, uh, you, you have to look at uh, currency rate fluctuations and you have to look at um, Uh, regulatory environment can you trust the financials that are being reported so so you have a an extra set of uh, things that you have to look at when you are investing in international companies which may not be the uh, uh, i mean there are also concerns when you are investing in us companies with international operations but may not be to such a, to such a large extent um, the, the second question is about the, the chinese uh, companies um so some chinese companies they they trade directly on the us uh, exchanges uh, without the vie structure so the vie structure is uh, something called a variable interest entity structure and uh, essentially when what it means is when you're buying a uh, the stock in a particular company you're not really buying stock in the company you're buying stock in some other company in the cayman islands or something like that which has some contract with the uh, with with this company so if you if you buy uh, shares of uh, alibaba or something something like that this way um, essentially you're you're not really getting shares of alibaba you're getting shares of some uh, entity that has a contract with alibaba now is that a big risk or not uh, that really uh, each individual person sort of has to uh, answer that for themselves there are plenty of smart investors who won't touch these companies because they think it's a big risk and there are plenty of smart investors who say that this is not really such a big risk come on i mean china is a rational actor and it's not like one day uh, the chinese uh, uh, communist party or uh, uh, the the president is going to get up and uh, outlaw all these contracts or something like that so people who believe there are people who believe this and there are people who believe that and there are plenty of smart people on both sides of the debate so i i don't really know uh, what is um, which which side is correct um, but i i i have not invested in any uh, chinese companies so um, my portfolio is, ba- uh, is largely us based and uh, i i do have uh, exposure to us companies that do a lot of business in china and other parts of the world but uh, i have not gone and invested in a in a a uh, company that's got a vie structure or anything like that thank thank you for answer uh, both of the question can i ask the last question uh, sure uh, so the right now what i am like a struggling with the prediction uh, like a future growth because 
reason is that uh, central bank expanded their balance sheet uh, and the interest rate low for the long time uh, and the covid so it's right now it's very difficult to uh, calculate the future growth or whatever the last 2 3 years growth is really organic growth or it's because of the covid or because of the interest rate low or the expansion of the balance sheet uh, so it's, it's very difficult to right now to predict whether the like a technology company has a same growth in next five year or it's not the same growth then what percentage growth we will have um right. i mean is there any other material other things if i will read and i can find it out um uh, better way because every time i think now you look at the balance sheet income statement i think oh last three years their growth is 20% and now next five years the growth is whether is a 10% or 20% it's very difficult to predict uh yeah you you are absolutely right so uh when investing in a company it's always a good idea to have um, some view of uh, what the future is going to hold and if uh, the majority of uh, today's uh, value uh in the uh, of a company in the market comes from expectations of future growth uh then one, one way to sort of uh, formalize this whole thinking is to uh, take the current market price of the company and try to figure out what growth assumptions are built into the market price and if you mm-hmm. if you want a good way to do that um, there's this book called uh, expectations investing by michael morbison uh, th- this book talks about uh, this whole technique of reverse dcfs and things like that and how uh, how exactly you can figure out what what kinds of assumptions are baked into the market price um and if you want practical examples of this uh, in action you can subscribe to this uh, this newsletter run by my friend uh, his name is uh, um uh, uh, the, the twitter handle is uh, borrowed ideas uh, his name is abdullah and uh, he he also uh, uh, he has this newsletter where he applies this reverse dcf to lots of uh, companies and if you want to see how this is done you can go and look at that newsletter so basically the idea is how much growth is embedded in the current market price and then you can uh, if you if you think that the growth is far more conservative of course growth is always hard to predict but you don't have to predict the growth for every single company um, if you have good visibility into the growth for a few companies and if you think that the market is uh, uh, budgeting for a much lower growth then you may be interested in acquiring shares of just those companies um so you are absolutely right i frequently uh, because i don't uh, I, i don't know whether the growth expectations uh, embedded into a stock are going to play out in the future i frequently put companies in my too hard pile uh, simply because i i don't know whether uh, the growth is going to come or not in the future okay thank you very much which book you said the expectation and uh, expectations investing by michael morbison okay thank you very much sure. uh, uh so the next uh, caller is anand and uh, let, let's make anand the the last caller because we are already uh, at an hour and 45 minutes here okay thank you thank you very much for your financial uh, education i have two question uh, one i want to understand about the fibonacci uh, retracement and golden triangle and how to use it in uh, investment so that's the first question or even in trading 
And the second question is, I also learned from you all probabilities and all those things. So I am thinking today that the probability of World War III is a little bit increased uh, by 10%. I was thinking it's probably not possible at all, but now I'm thinking it's probably increased by 10%. So how I can protect my portfolio buying like uh, some puts or SQQQ or something? What is your advice? Uh, so the probability of what exactly has increased by 10%? World War III. Oh, World War Three. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because um, so you know today Putin said that he's gonna, you know, he's gonna high alert the nuclear things and all those things. So initially, I was thinking that probability of World War Three is very, very minimal, um, almost close to zero percent. But now I'm thinking it's gonna be ten percent probably. You know. Um, sure. Well, um, so I I don't really have a view on that. Uh, so uh, no, but I'm just asking the question because you always talk absolutely. about the probability. So how, what should I act if I think like it's ten percent to twenty percent now? It increased, like you know, like they are talking about the interest hike rate initially, where they were talking about fifty basis point. Everybody said seventy percent chance, and now they are saying twenty five percent chance of you know fifty um, basis points. So uh, right. Uh, so, so how so you interest can, rate fluctuations? Uh, yeah. Sure. So how you uh, can use those probabilities? in your investment philosophies, you know? Uh, right. Uh, well, the, the, these are wonderful questions. I, I don't know if I have uh, such great answers for you, though. Uh, so uh, in, interest rate fluctuations and currency fluctuations and uh, the cyclicality of the uh, U.S. economy and things like that are uh, sort of pedestrian concerns. They, they always exist whenever you invest in the stock market. They've existed for the last 100 years and, and so on. Uh, World War Three is more like a uh, sort of an um, an event that uh, we probably haven't uh, had to grapple with for a very long time, um, and now now we are suddenly put into this situation where there are uh, geopolitical tensions and so on. Um, so I don't exactly um, I, I I have no idea what the probability of a World War Three is, but uh, if you believe that uh, the probability has increased or something like that. The question is, how, how do you position your portfolio uh, to uh, uh, sort of take this belief into account? And right. uh, so if you want to do things like this, um, uh, so, so there are some very, very smart people who have thought about this more than me. So one, one of them is uh, Jason Buck. Uh, so Jason Buck and uh, uh, Taylor Pearson, together they, they run a portfolio and they, they both have Twitter accounts. And uh, Jason Buck recently appeared uh, on a podcast. Uh, I don't remember which podcast it was, but you can Google it. And he talked about something called a cockroach portfolio. And uh, why, why he calls it a cockroach portfolio is because uh, cockroaches are, uh, they, they survive all kinds of things, even nuclear attacks and things like that, they, they survive. And so uh, Jason Buck uh, has this mandate from his investors that uh, he's managing their money and he wants to put it into stocks, uh, uh, stocks and other asset classes and so on. Uh, it's good. He wants it to behave like a cockroach, indestructible. Um, and uh, so he has some thoughts on how to construct your portfolio so that it's, uh, uh, even if there are a whole bunch of low probability events that can happen, uh, it's not going to affect your portfolio terribly. 
so uh, that that is definitely one thing uh, you can you can read more about and follow his work and and things like listen to the podcast and things like that um then there are others who have also looked at uh, th- this kind of uh, uh, situation so um, if, if you have something like a world war 3 that that happens uh, it's it's not going to affect uh, all companies uh, equally so some companies may be more uh, robust to this situation than other companies so for example if you if you take a defense contractor or some, some lockheed martin or uh, honeywell or some, some, something like that uh, that does a lot of business with the with with the U, uh, us government and has all these defense contracts and things like that uh, they are probably uh, positioned to do reasonably well uh, if if there's a war uh, but uh if you look at um, some other company like um, uh, say apple or something like that or uh, some uh, some other company which may not be as well positioned against world war 3 so maybe you don't have to buy uh, puts or anything like that uh, maybe you can just try to think about uh, if there is a risk then which companies will be affected more and which companies will be affected less uh, now of course you have to take a call on uh, if if there is a world war then uh is the stock market even going to exist <laughs> uh and, and so on so there are different levels of risk and uh you may be able to protect yourself against some risks but not against uh, all risks um, so so that that is the nature of investing and we all just try to do the do the best that we can yeah thank you very much and my second question was about fibonacci uh, retracement and ah uh, right <laughs> well so um i have not seen an application of uh, the fibonacci series in investing uh, although the golden ratio is, is so common that uh, it might very well have some applications that i i don't know about uh, but the the general idea uh, that uh, if you if you set up a recurrence equation uh, to model a particular investing phenomenon so th- i i talked about lots of different places where recurrence equations are used and uh if you set up a recurrence equation and uh if that recurrence equation happens to be a linear recurrence equation uh and a lot of financial applications also uh, satisfy this requirement that the recurrence equation is linear uh then it turns out that you can actually solve this recurrence equation by finding the roots of some polynomial uh now this is getting into technical detail uh but if essentially if you can solve a polynomial you can solve this recurrence equation and it just so happens that this particular polynomial which i had in uh, my example it turned out that the roots of that polynomial were, were the golden ratio uh, because of the fibonacci recurrence but it doesn't have to be the golden ratio it can be any other uh, it can be some other polynomial with some other roots and then you will get a different set of results but the method for solving the recurrence equation essentially finding the roots of a polynomial that can be applied to lots of different financial uh, calculations and uh, so so examples include uh, mortgage calculations and uh, uh, analyzing the growth in companies and and things like that so you may not see the golden ratio itself because the golden ratio is a root of a specific polynomial but this general idea that you construct a polynomial and find its roots and apply the roots to solve a recurrence equation that arises all over the place in finance and investing thank you very much thanks a lot thank you okay
thank you very much. So, uh, so thank thank you all very much for uh, showing up. Uh, I I really enjoyed this uh, this podcast, and I hope that uh, you also learned uh, some things from it. Um, so, if if you think this was uh, valuable, please share it with your friends. It's it's completely free, uh, and now we have both iOS and Android. So uh, if, if you want to share it on social media or something like that, uh, it'll really help me out. Uh, thank, thank you so much and uh, see you next week. Bye-bye.